The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Michael Gruber. Mike was impelled to serve by the examples of his veteran parents. West Point was not his first choice, but their strong cadet candidate program and luck resulted in his acceptance and his attendance. Mike was the epitome of grit and threw himself at multiple challenges and opportunities while at the academy. Mike fell short of some of those goals, but graduated as an infantry officer with the skills and the repetitions necessary to succeed at Officer Basic School and Ranger School. Mike reported to the 3rd Infantry Division and caught their train up and deployment to the liberation of Iraq. Fate struck him and his platoon, and he was separated from his team after tragedy. Mike served the remainder of that deployment on rear detachment, separate from his platoon with scars forming on his psyche. The path to redemption has been long and hard fought. This is his story. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder-owned company that specializes in handmade, one-of-a-kind American flags. I served with Andy, spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, handcrafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order, and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're speaking with Mike Gruber. How you doing today, Mike? Good. Good. So, first question, why West Point? Yeah, well, uh, West Point. Well, um, to be honest, West Point wasn't my first uh, uh, choice. Um, I was listening to uh, Brett Lanier's podcast with you the other day, and I, something clicked. And I remembered back when I was starting off, I remember, I think it was middle school or whatnot, some, some uh, naval officer came in and talked to our school about careers and I'm like, man, that sounds cool. I want to be a Navy SEAL. Hey, I want to go to college. Oh, they got a whole school that the, the Navy will pay for that? That sounds that sounds perfect. I, my folks didn't have a whole lot of money to throw around. So being the oldest, I'm like, I've always wanted to do the military. They got a school in the military? Great, sign me up. So signed up, um, got my paperwork in. But, you know, hedging my bets, I applied to all three service academies. And uh, the, the, the story goes... Uh, Air Force gave me the wrong phone number to call back to because they didn't want to hear from me. 
Navy put me on a wait list without telling me, but Army actually had a recruitment coordinator, a colonel, reach out to me. Hey, Mike, I got your packet today. Great. Your next step is X. Okay, sir, I'll, I'll go do X. So um, I got accepted. I uh, immediately dropped out of senior uh, Spanish because I was terrible at it and <laughs> and got ready to join uh, to join West Point, get myself physically fit and uh, get ready to join up. And about a week before our day, a uh, Navy calls me up out of the blue and says, hey, somebody got a DUI and that moves you up on the list. And I thought to myself, I'm behind the guy with a DUI. No, I'm good. I'm going to go. With, I'm going to go with West Point. <laughs> Turns out it might have been Brett Lanier. <laughs> so what did you do to prep? Um, well, like I said, I've always been um, uh, drawn to the military. My my father was a Marine vet. My mother was a Air Force vet. And going back generations, we you can you can you can find a Gruber in in the ranks somewhere. Going back to uh, our first uh, immigrants, um, it just. Just the order of the military, I needed a little bit extra discipline. Don't tell my uh, West Point recruiter, but I actually had ADD growing up. That would have disqualified me. But I, I needed that, uh, that structure to, to be successful. And um, I, I knew that the military was the route for me. I knew that uh, service was what I wanted to do. And I knew college was important. And... Um, like I said, uh, a, a military school sounded like the, the best place that 18-year-old Mike Gruber needed to be. And so getting ready, um, you know, I was a Boy Scout. I was, uh, I was involved in a group called Sea Cadets. It's kind of like JROTC, uh, um, camping, uh, um, growing up and doing my sports. I was a, I was a cross-country runner. At one point, I thought I might make the Olympics after watching the after watching them on TV once, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I stayed, I stayed very active and, and involved in my, in my, in my clubs, my, my scouts and, and my sports. And, uh, that's how I got ready for West Point. Just kind of trying to keep up my grades and, and picking and choosing the winners in the classes, like getting rid of Spanish. Cause that would have killed me. So you show up to West Point and, um, did it live up to the hype? Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, uh, I was it, it was larger than life. I mean, I pulled up there and, and immediately felt like, holy cow, where where am I? This is it felt like I can't even. I wish I would knew a movie or something to kind of give it to light. I mean, I grew up in 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 very middle class, straight middle class. My dad was a firefighter. Mom was a school secretary. You know, there was a Catholic church on every corner in my town. Um, we thought, you know, Catholics ruled the world, John F. Kennedy, the Pope, the whole nine yards show up there and like, whoa, who are all these Protestants? How do, how did they get in charge? And, and just like immediately blown away by the caliber of our classmates. Um, I thought I was pretty straight, but I didn't, I had no idea how, you know, they say the best of the best. Everybody was a valedictorian. I wasn't even a valedictorian coming on my high school, but I knew I could get through things. Um, but I was totally amazed by, um, the caliber of people and the, and the resources. One of the lessons I learned very quickly at West Point was that I needed help and that there was way more help available than I could ever possibly utilize. 
there was tutors, there was mentors, there was, uh, I don't remember, you, you know, you took the class of plebeer about the speed reading and sitting in the egg and, and, and visualizing things. I mean, I tried to take all of that just to, to keep up, I felt like. Um, and always very proud of the, of the, of the majesty of the, um, the ceremonial aspects of it, the, uh, the, the fa- family almost, um, one of my earliest memories was uh, when we came back from, what was it, Labor Day, and one of our classmates had died in the um, a car accident, and we had that midnight taps out on the, on the parade field. I mean, I mean, if you don't get a chill right down to the bone, I don't think you're alive after witnessing something like that. So it lives up to the hype. You're surrounded by these high-caliber individuals and these resources. How did your West Point experience go? Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was tough for me. Um, I like to say I graduated the uh, the top ten percent of the bottom half, but I still graduated. Um, I had some trials and tribulations, but I always I always try to put myself out. Um, I I try to walk on to the cross country team, and um, I ran a few races. <laughs> put it that way, I, I ran a few races, but uh, I was nowhere near the the caliber of a athlete that uh, Division One athletes call for. Um, I got authos for indoor track, but the coach said I wasn't allowed to practice with the team if I trained up enough and 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 ran the mile in some ungodly amount of time. I could I could maintain maintain my my membership on the team. And uh, well, let's just say after that first race, coach pulled me aside and said, "Well, Mike, it's it's not your work ethic. It's just your talent." and that cut me pretty deep because I kind of thought as a coach, you could work with work ethic. You can't teach work ethic, but maybe you could help with the talent part. I don't know. Maybe I was expecting somebody to take me under <laughs> their wing and show me how to do it better, but I guess he didn't have time for that. Um, so I, I, I pursued other avenues. Um, I got really close with my, um, my plebe uh, classmates and joined uh, the Sandhurst uh, teams there all four years. And then by uh, yuck year, uh, me and Adrian Hasso went out for uh, CDQC. And uh, I didn't make it, or I made it as an alternative. I passed, like, I think just the fact that you made it through the, the one-day, like, eight-hour fitness test put you on the alternate list. And then if anybody from the top dropped out, you, you maybe could go. Um, so I, I, I gutted through and made it through the first that that assessment day but was never selected for it um that was yeah the i wanted for qualification course right the uh combat diver qualification course you know it was supposed to you know the special forces uh school that you could go to as a as a west point kid and like i was all about it because i i very early on from beast barracks i i knew i wanted to go infantry uh i just looked at it that for me the purpose of the army was to close with and destroy our enemies through fire and maneuver and that was the job of the infantry everybody else was support um it seemed like not everybody was all about that and seemed like the harder right than the easy wrong and like as i've mentioned before sometimes i got that conflated that well if it's hard it must be the right answer so i had to go find the hardest thing to go do and for me that was cdqc and uh, uh the boxing team and and sandhurst um, because I wasn't making it in the, in the classroom. So I had to find some other way to differentiate myself. 
like what, I mean, what you're doing here is you have NCAA level caliber swimmers and polo uh, water polo players doing CQDC. Yeah, I didn't know that was a sport. <laughs> <laughs> You've got Golden Gloves boxers who are doing this not just for intramurals but for a club sport competing across the best of the nation, and you're walking on um, as a dude from Detroit. <laughs> Not even I, I. You can't even say Detroit. I mean, I'm Detroit-ish. I'm from the <laughs> suburbs. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Like, did, did, were those moments of of did they humble you? Did they challenge you? How did you react to that? Because there's people there that ten thousand hours plus in those sports. In the moment, in the room with them. No, I I I felt like in the moment walking in the room. I could. I always felt I could hold my own. I may not be the best, but nobody's going to work harder than me. Um, boy, yeah, that's that's. If there was a mantra to Mike Gruber, that's it. I may not be the best, but nobody's going to work harder than me. Um, that's why my knees hurt so bad. I think, but uh, yeah, but afterwards, yeah. And when you when you lay it all out on the line, you're you're faced with a realization that. Either I picked the wrong door to walk through <laughs> or my best just wasn't good enough. Um, and I think, I don't know, some people maybe they they can brush those sorts of things off. Like, well, it just, you know, that wasn't for me. Um, many times it felt like, wow, could I have done something more? Could I, could I push a little bit harder? When you're, when you're at that breaking point, did, did, I, did I shy away from, from that or did I really give it my all? So a lot of times after failure, I find myself like, did I really give it my all? Or did I, did I quit internally somehow and it showed up in the scorecard at the end of it? Um, and those, that's always a question I'm asking myself. Talk me through CTLT. Um, CTLT, what a great, great experience. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I don't know how I got it. I don't know if I... I don't remember asking for it specifically, but I went to Fort Wainwright, Alaska. Uh, I mean, God's country. Just see some place most people won't ever see. Um, the unit there, I was attached to the mortar platoon of the HHC company of 1st of the 17th, and they were going through EIB training. And they wouldn't let us cadets participate. We weren't infantrymen, technically. So we couldn't go through EIB, which was all fine and good. You know, I helped the platoon leader with some, you know, some, um, um, you know, PT schedules or something like that. But the experience, uh, the off-campus experience was, was, was probably the best part and what I remember most about CTLT. As, uh, um, man, who was it? it was, uh, me, Jeremy Vaughn, and uh, Matt Lee, and uh, somebody else. Can't Anyways, a lot of guys on the weekends, we would go, you would go out on the weekends and a lot of guys went down to Anchorage to do halibut fishing. We went up on a, um, we chartered a little Cessna and took us out into the middle of the tundra to do some midnight fishing just in little rowboats in, on these streams. And, uh, I remember the guide turning to us and we packed up our bags and like, we didn't know if we were going to catch anything. So we stopped at the PX and grabbed some cans of chef boy rd just so we went star for the weekend <laughs> and he we we're packing the plane and you know it was weight limited it was a very small plane five you know four guys and and a guide and our gear for the weekend and he turns us 
You boys got a gun on you? And we're like, oh, no, no, sir, not at all. Well, here, take mine. And so this, and this, this revolver, like, you know, we're going to bear country, right? And, like, and that really sunk in, like, oh, we are, he is literally dropping off in the middle of the wilderness for th- three days or whatnot. And uh, it was, but it was awesome. We, we fished in little rowboats till 2.30 in the morning, and the sun was still out. And we cooked what we caught, and he came and picked us up like three days later. And just being exposed to the mountains and and the outdoors like that was was an amazing treat. Did that um, solidify your your goal for Branch? Oh, I I think I was all in for a long time. But yes, I definitely wanted to be part of the infantry. Um, I got to see what they what they did a little bit from afar, at least watching the EIB uh, train ups and just. Hey, that's we 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 used all infantry tactics at West Point, right? Everything, every lesson we learned was, you know, how to set up a radio, how to call for fire, nine line medevac, all the, you know, everything was kind of centered around infantry tactics. Whether you were going to be a Signal Corps officer or you're going to be an infantryman, all of our all of our MS classes, right, were essentially centered on on on, on basic infantry tactics. So it just seemed like, why wouldn't you go infantry <laughs> to me? And, uh, yeah, so I, I wound up branching infantry, uh, no surprise there. Uh, after the class at 2000, there was no, no fear of, of infantry going out, <laughs> right? Uh, the, the next big question was, was posting. And by this point in time in my life, I had, had a, um, been in a very serious relationship with my now wife uh, since yuck year. And the way that was only successful, I think, because we were both pursuing our own personal goals. Uh, you know, neither of us had time for, for, for messing around on the side because we were both working towards uh, uh, our, our dreams and her dream of becoming a, a doctor and mine becoming infantry officer um, uh, lended itself to a lot of late night studying and some phone dates and emails, even some actual hard, hard paper letters back and forth. And um, we were graduating undergrad the same period and she had to select a med school i had to select a a posting and so as a good uh engineer management i developed a uh, spreadsheet of 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 posts and the corresponding closest med school so that we could we could war game war game this out and the best we got was um uh i went to uh, fort stewart georgia and she attended uh Nova Southeastern University in uh, Fort Lauderdale. So it was about uh, 450 miles um, of travel that was going to take place over the next couple of years on our, on our four-day weekends. And uh, that worked out. That worked out for us. I mean, it would have been nicer to be closer, but been married ever, ever since 04. So it did. It worked out for us. Um, every weekend, like I said, every four-day weekend, I'd be driving down i-95 while everybody was headed north getting away from the hurricanes and i'd be driving down and i would help board up houses of friends and watch her study in the library <laughs> i licked my wounds from from iobc so how did iobc um, go or that iobc yeah um iobc was great i got to i mean i think um i i've spoke before about um teams and relationships being what I think the most the, the most important component of leadership is building a team and any team is a component of people and people have the idiosyncrasies and ha- had a great 
had a, I remember having a great squad. I, I mean, John Hopkins, um, Doug Graham, um, uh, in my squad, a couple other guys from, uh, ROTC programs and, and national, uh, national guard guys in the squad. And I remember working very well together and, uh, we were in the, the early class, uh, started in June, I think at the end of June or first of Jan- July, I can't quite recall. And, uh, yeah, by September 11th, we had really gelled, uh, as, as, as a team. And, um, it was, that was really surreal for us on that morning. Uh, we had just completed a, what we called a March to morning, just wandering around the woods all night. And, and I was on, I was assigned to a chow run and went and, uh, was picking up chow from the defect to bring it out to the field to the guys. And we heard over the news that a plane hit the world trade center. And I think somebody else mentioned in one of your other podcasts, you know, remember, I think, um, like uh, the assumption was it was like a Cessna. Like there was like the one guy who landed his plane in the, on the Kremlin. There was a, there was a Cessna that hit one of the world trade center towers a couple of years earlier. And so didn't think too much of it until the cadre came out and said, Hey, anybody with family in New York, DC or Pennsylvania, come with us. The rest of you guys just hold fast. That was weird. We'd never been left alone to our own devices out in the woods before. That was, that really was a wake up call to us all. That's something real was happening. And, uh, I remember one of the older national guard guys, a, a veteran of Kosovo pulled out our radio and somehow was able to tune into CBS radio over like AM on the army issue radio. And just all of us huddled around a tree laying out, listening to the news reports. It wasn't until a week later, almost a week later that Friday night after, after we returned to the field, turned in our weapons and being payday, of course, we all went to Outback Steakhouse out there in Fort Benning and saw a recap of, of the footage in the lobby of Outback. And there's like 10 of us sitting in the lobby, and this is the first we've seen it. And everybody's staring at us like, where have you guys been? Living under a rock? Yeah, kind of. As, as you move into Ranger School, um, the impact of 9-11 and some, some uh, officers knowing they're going to light infantry units and, and the first light infantry units going to Afghanistan. And you going to Stewart, what was playing in your mind? Well, I, in my mind, um, I needed to get through ranger school because I needed to be in front of platoon uh, when the time came. And Stewart, 3rd ID, we were the mechanized backbone for the 18th Airborne Corps. So I figured if they needed us, I mean, if, the, if it got much worse than that, we'd be, we had to be ready to go. And um, I kind of hit my first post at a really kind of a perfect timing i like to say like i hit all the iterations so um i showed up to my unit in like july of 02 and immediately we were starting with um uh, basic rifleman marksmanship um we did some squad stakes platoon stakes company stakes uh, uh full unit gunnery and then off to ntc like we literally hit every training gate in four or five months uh, back to back to back. We were, we were, we were in that training cycle and we were already, my unit, when I showed up was already in the queue, uh, to go to Saudi Arabia as part of the, you know, the leftovers from the Gulf war as the deterrence to Iraq. 
So we were already on the calendar to go, I think. I think we were originally scheduled to go in May of 03, and our sister battalion was scheduled to go January of 03. And so we were already in that training mindset, getting ready to deploy. And um, as it turns out, I went home on, on block leave over Christmas, and I'm standing in the mall in Detroit and get a phone call from my company commander like, hey, our orders got pulled ahead. We're leaving in January. When you get back off leave, pack up your stuff, and we're, we're leaving right in the beginning of January. So that's what we did. Uh, just kind of fell into that. Um, like I said, I was thankful that we got, got to go through all those training iterations, got to go through NTC together, uh, got to know my, my, my unit, and start to build the trust. I, uh, I took over for a guy... Mark Shank, uh, class of 2000, he had been with the unit for the platoon for like 18 months, which was kind of long for an infantry platoon leader. Um, and so he had developed a very, very close relationship with the platoon that I had. I was the new guy. I was coming in, taking over for him. He was still on battalion staff. I know he would still have barbecues with his, his guys um, from the from his old platoon, which were now... <laughs> my guys. And so I had to, I had to, uh, I had to train with them. I had to, I had to learn from them. I had to approach things differently. I wasn't going to be the cool guy that hung out with them any, you know, at, at all. Um, and I couldn't be, I was never a hard ass kind of guy. Uh, so I had to, I had to approach things a little bit differently and being a, a brand new Lieutenant out of West Point, I knew immediately I couldn't, I couldn't rely just on the ring either. Right. So, you know, I kind of approach things a little bit differently. You know, I, when I first came into the unit, I started engaging the, the specialists, the E4s, E3s, E5s. Uh, when I'm talking about EIB tasks or, or, or infantry tasks, hey, if I tell you to go, you know, lay down suppressive fire for whatever, what does that mean to you? What, you know, how does that, how, what does that translate to your job? How do, you, how, how do you crack this nut? that I tell you. And so I, I try to take on the role, like I want you to train me. And then I engage my NCOs about taskings, like, you know, company commander come down with a tasking or whatnot. And Hey, how would you approach it? What do, what do you, what do we need to consider? And when it was appropriate, I brought their concerns up. And when it wasn't, I told them we had to move on. And I try to take that, that idea from the TAC NCOs back at West Point is that, Hey, I'm 22 years old coming into a group with, you know, 30 year olds and whatnot with much more experience than I had probably went through EIB. I went through Ranger, but that's not the same. Um, let them train me so that they could trust me that I would, I would have, they had my ear if they needed it. But if I told them we ain't got time for that, they would trust the fact that they trained me and follow me through. And that worked pretty well. I think I was really making inroads. Uh, we we deployed uh, as our as our um, our full platoon. Our platoon leader, our platoon sergeant, didn't he PCS right in the last minute? That was kind of sketchy. And so we promoted one of our uh, section chiefs to platoon sergeant. And him and I took the platoon to Kuwait. Subsequently on, um, but then through that first combat scenario as part of the invasion um we had some real heartaches going forward um um excuse me for so um as part of the invasion 
forces. Uh, we were up on the border when the uh, scuds first attacked, and I, you know what? I want can I time out? Yep. Okay, so no shit. There we are on the. Uh, we're we're getting ready for the invasion. It's like the night before, and um, we got kicked out of whatever camp Pennsylvania. We were out on the. We were just out in an alpha alpha. We literally just put parked us in the middle of the desert for like three days prior to the invasion. Um, just to kind of sit and wait and practice with our, with our, 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 our company and a little alpha alpha. And, you know, we, we pulled out the, um, we got issued our, our mop gear now. And, you know, it was all in the vacuum sealed bags and okay. Squad leaders, hundred percent hands on inventory. Everybody put their stuff on, check and make sure they fit. Everybody's got one top, one bottom, the right size, the buttons all the way up, right? The whole nine yards. And I want squad leaders, hundred percent hands on. Um, so we go through that. I thought we had trained up. I thought we had a pretty good rapport. I thought we had pretty good systems in place for, for the unit. And, um, the night before scud, scud alert comes and get the call, go to mop and lo and behold, private snuffy. It's got two tops and no bottoms. Oh Lord. One of the hardest kids of the unit crying like a baby because he doesn't have two tops and his platoons or his squad leader said, well, I trusted him to check his own stuff. That was one of those moments you're like, maybe I should have hundred percent checked everybody. <laughs> but uh, luckily first sergeant was able to uh, get back to the Connex, find his gear and get this kid a set of bottoms. And uh, we drove on. Um, we crossed the berm without much fanfare and I remember, one of the, what I remember from the invasion in that moment, at first, say, 24 hours, we came across Bedouins, guys, people who for millennia had lived out of tents herding sheep and camels or whatnot. And I look back across the desert as we're coming over a crest line, and the call came on, we're, we're America's military, most highly sophisticated, we're trained to operate at night, and the call comes on, to travel in white light. The sun is setting, and we are, we are divisions abreast coming across the desert in white light. We must have looked like a goddamn alien invasion to these Bedouins. Now, I'm sure they had cable TV and direct TV on their, on their trucks or whatnot, but still, to see America reach out from across, halfway across the world, and just see a sea of headlights coming across the desert, must have just been an like I said, an alien invasion, that first the first couple of folks that we encountered. And we didn't really encounter resistance for very long. We eventually did, got into a couple of firefights. Um, wound up getting our, our, our battalion, or excuse me, my company, wound up getting separated from our lead element because we had we had taken prisoners, and we the, the battalion wanted and brigade wanted to push the advance. And so we were told to stand by with the EPWs and uh, transfer custody to a, a division asset when division headquarters came past. Well, okay, so we stood fast, handed off our EPWs, and now we're playing catch-up to our, our lead element. And we finally catch up to the lead. It was, we were like two days, let's say two days on the run. It was like it was like caravanning down you know, I-10 in L.A. through so much traffic of U.S. military equipment, beg borrowing and stealing gas along the way to catch up to our lead elements. And we finally 
catch our lead elements when we hit the uh, the not a tactical pause, tactical pause, and uh, our, our our battalion had set up an alpha alpha while they waited for supplies and fuel to catch up. And so well, we arrived on scene. They had already set up um, their their operations just south of Karbala Gap, getting ready for the big push into Baghdad. And um, we get like the t- almost like by scripted back from gunnery about ground radar reports, track vehicles in the area. And they say they sent me and uh, Jason Sigler out on a seek and destroy mission to, to go, you know, verify, validate or blow up whatever we found. And we were out there for a few hours and didn't find anything as per usual with ground surveillance radar. It wasn't very accurate. Um, so we came back through our lines and, um, so the, the the pressure's off. Like, okay, okay. Our first test, we've been through a fight. We've been through, we, 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 we've been out on mission. We're starting to get, a, I don't want to say comfortable. We're, but, but we're, we're starting to feel okay enough that we know what we're doing and we, we trusted the guys on our left and right. And it felt good. And the, op- the, um, the order came down. I tuned to um, uh, screen forward for uh, uh, an LPOP to set up for the night to protect our flank. And so um, my platoon, we head out to go relieve the, the unit that was already there. And we had, like I said, we'd already been traveling across the, across the country by like, like vagabonds already, not necessarily in, in, in your typical formation or by orders. We were making up as we go along and, and maybe we felt a little bit comfortable. I don't know, but we had been, we've been uh, bulldozing our way over um, uh, farmers fields uh, off road, going over berms, uh, that they use for their property line. And this particular one uh, thought it was another berm, rolled up, I rolled up over it. My wingman went over around to the side and uh, there wasn't ground on the other end. And I don't know what happened exactly, but next thing I know, I come, I kind of came to, I realized we fell down a hole. We fell something like 45 feet down a irrigation well. And uh, the Bradley, I mean, it was a 60-foot hole. We could have gone further, but the Bradley actually wedged itself into the sloping sides of the uh, of the hole, and that stopped our descent. And like I mentioned, we we had passed back through our lines, and and my 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 dismounted squad had had decided to um, take off their helmets or or a couple of them to get some air, a little bit of a break, and we didn't wear seatbelts back then. Uh, this is be all before all the IEDs. The idea was you had to be able to get out fast if you needed to. And they they got messed up. I mean, you can imagine 40-ton vehicle falling 45 feet and guys just getting flopped around like rag dolls in the back. And I kind of came to, to the smell of diesel fuel and the sound of my platoon sergeant standing above me asking, you know, what happened? Just get them out. Get them out. And he did. He, he popped the troop door he drug everybody out. Um, Sergeant Wisner, he was the hero of that day. He pulled a, every one of them guys out of the back of the Bradley and uh, called for help. Battalions circled the wagons around us for protection and um, awaited medevac. And what's interesting, they never tell you this, right? They always tell you as a platoon leader, when in charge, take charge. They never tell you what to do when you're not in charge. So I get, I get pulled out, last I get pulled out, uh, pretty obviously I got a broken arm or whatever, head, head, head injury, whole battalion worth of security around us, battalion medics, 
battalion commander calling in air su- air support, a whole battalion on guard around us, and me and my platoon are just sitting, and I'm I'm out of it. I'm wandering around the Alpha Alpha trying to make myself useful. I'm I'm collecting nods and rifles. I'm doing a serial number check on all my guys and a, a welfare check. But everybody who's hurt is getting tended to by a by a medic. We are safe as safe can be, and I'm dazed and confused, wandering around the middle of the desert, checking for her nods because I don't know what else to do. And I just went and sat with my injured to try to comfort them. It was obvious something was with with Sergeant Solomon. It was going bad. He coded one or two times. The chaplain was there. The medics were there. They resuscitated him. And we're just waiting on Blackhawks. And we wound up waiting for two hours. Not to take anything away from anybody, but at the time that we did, they did we were at the front we were at the front lines and they didn't want to this what I heard later was that the, the they couldn't come up without an armed escort. They couldn't get the Apaches or whatever to bring the gunships to our location. So the Medevac was was delayed. And when they finally showed up, they put the walking on one and they put no. They put the wounded on one, and they put Sergeant Solomon on the other. And it was obvious that he had died. And somebody came up, to, walked up to me, I don't remember who, and said, Hey, sir, you need to go. Get on the bird. And I did. I didn't think, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't, I didn't feel like I was needed. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I wish I had had the fortitude to say, Fuck no, I'm good to go. I'm going to lead the rest of my platoon here on out. But I didn't. Somebody said, You look hurt you should go get checked out. And I just, I sat on the bird and I was evacuated. I wound up, uh, wound up through three or four medical systems, the MASH, the, the Kuwait, Longstool, Walter Reed. And by the end of it, it was, well, I think you need this. I think you need that. Move on. And by the end of it, I didn't need anything. I wound up walking it off. I walked off my arm my arm by the time my my by the time we got to walter reed that my arm had healed enough that they couldn't do the surgery they thought they needed to i essentially walked it off i could have been still in the fight but somebody said get on the plane and i kind of just did and it felt like i had abandoned my unit and my unit felt like that i had abandoned them um that's the attitude i got from a lot of guys my platoon sergeant you know like i mentioned our e7 somehow finagled his way out, PCS'd, we promoted up an E6, Sergeant Wisner, then he lost his platoon leader. And he wound up going the rest of the deployment without a platoon leader. So a junior platoon sergeant trying to manage a unit in combat. And um, I felt like I, uh, I let them down. I felt like I somehow quit on them when I didn't need to. I don't know. You know, you ask yourself a thousand different questions after something like that. And, and the, I don't know if I have a more of the story to that. Um, you know, years later talking to my squad, one of my squad leaders and he's, you know, sir, it just came down to my wingman, Sergeant Staddy. He's like, I went left, you went right. You wound up down a hole. I didn't. That's what happened. And that's all that happened. And you can't have changed that. And so that's, that helped. Um, getting back to that idea of expectation that I think we were all prepared. We were all prepared going through four years at West Point, going through Ranger, Airborne, CTLT, all the, all the G whiz schools we go to. 
and we uh, read all the books and the novels and the biographies that we had we had a vision in our head of what combat was supposed to look like and what's an acceptable combat loss you know getting shot at getting getting blown up getting artillery whatever uh, uh, some direct action by the enemy you you knew you didn't want it but you knew that was a realistic expectation what we never talk about is <laughs> what it really means what Murphy's Law really means, that the truly unexpected can happen. And, um, you know, I'm so thankful for the opportunity that uh, my battalion commander gave me upon his return. Um, I, when I was medevaced, I, was, I wound up being the rear D commander. I was, I was trying to get back, but they wouldn't let it, me back. I, my job was to train new people to, to replacement. But um, when he did come back and he... He put his, he came in what I thought was my office and sat down on what I thought was my chair, put his feet up on what I thought was my desk and asked me if I wanted a second platoon. I mean, I don't think the words could have come out faster out of my mouth. And when he did that, he gave me a purpose back to start training and getting ready for the next iteration. And on top of that, he tasked me with engaging the brand new lieutenants that were coming in to the battalion. Um, through some snafu of paperwork, me being rear D and the, the unit being forward deployed, um, my 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 packet to captain didn't get filed correctly, and I was delayed. So I was like this super senior first lieutenant at the time, and so he had me take all the brand new cherry lieutenants into the conference room and talk to them about my experience. And that's what I tried. What I tried to impress upon them was what the unexpected really means. We can, you can be the fittest, you know, 330 APFT guy in the room. You could be Airborne Ranger, CDQC guy, you know, and been to all the right schools. But to lose a member of your unit through a training accident, like a couple of our classmates, to a non, non-hostile non act like Sergeant Solomon, that's when you're going to, that's when you're really going to be tested. And that's what you have to prepare yourself for on that plane ride over. That no matter what, the worst thing that could happen, I have to figure out how I'm going to react and, and move forward. And that's my PTSD. The second deployment, your second platoon, how'd that go? That went very well. Um, I was, like I mentioned, by that time, I was, uh, I was in this new position, this S3, uh, assistant S3 position, uh, going to stand up this thing called the, the JCC, the Joint Coordination Center. Sir, what does that mean? I don't know, but you're going to figure it out. Yes, sir. I'm going to figure it out. You know, when the boss who gave you a second chance asks you to do something special, you're going to do it, right? So Colonel Wood said, you're going to be my JCC guy. Hell yes, sir. What does that mean? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, so I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, go forward with um, one of the first uh, Advon units for our, our unit to Tikrit, Iraq, taken over for first armor. And my old roommate, Scott Haiti, um, had been there prior. And so, excuse me, I, um, I got on the ground and the uh, outgoing captain that had been running things wanted to go show us a little tour of his town to crit. Well, this guy apparently hadn't really typically crossed the wire very often, but when he did, he always did it for a show. Uh, and so he took us around a and gave us a tour of Tikrit, 
and backtrack through some of the areas you're not supposed to backtrack through. And lo and behold, surprise, surprise, we got hit with an IED. And uh, we had a convoy of Iraqi army, me, um, the first armor captain, and uh, my partner, uh, Calvin Swint, uh, who was going to take over for the, the Iraqi army liaison. I was going to take over for the JCC, essentially the Iraqi police liaison. And uh, Swint's truck was lead. He got hit. And I remember they put it, they put the IED in one of these like giant planter boxes. You've seen these like now that around all around Washington DC or whatnot to prevent vehicles from coming through. So they planted the IED in one of those. And when it blew, it just blew this giant plume of dirt right outside uh, my vehicle window, just out in front at, at Swint's vehicle. And I just remember it was like slow motion, like, fuck, this is going to be a long year. <laughs> Day one, here we are. But uh, we were able to, um, I was able to exit the vehicle, coordinate a response with the Iraqi army and, and, and uh, get the vehicles moving to, uh, to the gate. And uh, one of the gunners was significantly injured. We had no KIA we had a couple wounded from that, and um, but everybody was able to recover. Everybody was uh, was evac'd. Every um, we did what we were supposed to do. We did we we did battle drill. We did the battle drill. It worked, and I felt very vindicated. I felt like okay, I do know my job. I can do my job even under the stress of fire. And um, I was all out from there on out. Um, um, working with the Iraqis, working with the interpreters, developing intel sources, um, trying to do things off the, off the cuff without a playbook. Um, I was like, yes, I do know my job. I can do this. And um, me and Swint uh, did that to varying degrees uh, for, the, for, for the majority of the rest of the year. They pulled us back um, to the talk. To, so we were, we were living with the Iraqis. There was... There was about there was me, Swint, and a and um, a sergeant first class um, Stevens that we were in charge of trying to teach Iraqis how to run an Iraqi army and police group. I don't know how we got picked for that, but we did to the best of our ability. But then they started bringing in um, MIT teams, guys who were trained, guys of National Guard with police backgrounds. Um, um, maybe they could do things a little bit better, but. Um, we developed a lot of relationships with with our Iraqi counterparts, but like I said, there was like there was three or four of us main uh, cadre and a security force, and we lived on an Iraqi army base for the majority of the year, and that was amazing. I mean, just amazing. Just being able to get out there. Hey, there's going to be a strike at the at the at the at the hospital because they don't have enough medicine to go around, and so the nurses are all going to strike tomorrow. All right, let's go down and try to negotiate with them. Let's see if we can't figure out a fix. Let's let's see what supplies we have from battalion we can get and bring them to it. I mean, it just like who you, you can't you couldn't script it. It was just it was like find a problem and fix it every day. It was it was awesome. It was awesome. Uh, I got to be part of the national referendum, their first uh, constitutional convention. Um, just felt I don't know. It felt like the Wild West. Like we did. We had no playbook, and we were we were making up as we go along, and I think we made it better than we left it. And I think that's the best, no matter what you think of the politics, or our reasons for going to Iraq versus Afghanistan or this place or the other place. You know, we were soldiers. 
we were leaders, and our job was to leave it a little bit better than we found it and do it with with honor and integrity. That second not, point, that, that not idea. stealing money from the Iraqis, or, <laughs> you know, all those kind of pitfalls people were found themselves in. The idea of redemption, because yeah. um, it was probably chewing you up as you could hear it in your voice when you were talking about get, leaving on that air, that helicopter. Yeah. Did you get closure after that second deployment? I thought I did. I mean, I was in a better place after, after the first deployment. I was I was abusing alcohol a lot. I when we got word of the second deployment, just and it was just before I was getting married as well. Um, wound up going going out drinking. Well, okay, here's story time. So no shit, there I was. Uh, me and my other platoon leaders, we're 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 back stateside, right? We're getting we got my new platoons. Uh, I'm a I'm a company XO. I'm I'm training. I'm training lieutenants on how to follow a, a captain they may not want to follow, but you know, getting to them to the point where trusting in the system. Hey, you got, you know, command's a three-man team, right? You got your first sergeant, XO, and, and company commander, and usually they only put one dud out of those three in, in those <laughs> positions. And the command team will get us through, okay? No matter what you think of the one guy, we'll get you through. And so we developed some very close relationship. The PLs, me and and we had gone to the gun range, gone shooting. That's what we did. That was our that was our fun time. And I got hit by a ricochet. It was the weirdest thing. So I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what happened, but a, a piece of, of of jacket bounced back off a steel target and hit me right in the gut. Um, it was fairly superficial, but man, it makes a good story. I got hit in the stomach. Right. I got a little scar for it. And so you know, what do you do when you survive that? You go out drinking with your buddies. <laughs> And a long night of drinking and turned into, holy shit, we're going back over. Holy shit, we lost one. I lost one. And I had a, I had a, I had a break with, uh, with reality. Um, and my friends were trying to contain me. I wanted to kill myself. I, instead of going back over and risk losing another soldier the way I did, killing another soldier, I was going to kill myself in a fit of drunkenness. And I was going to walk home and get my pistol, and I was going to kill myself. And my buddies tried to stop me. Police wound up getting called. Police showed up, told me to get on the ground. I said, fuck you. Why don't you shoot me? Because I'm going to go shoot myself. He thought a better idea was to hit me up with the uh, the taser and take me to the hospital for evaluation. Um, I was put through, um, whatever, 72-hour evaluation and had to get signed in under the care of my battalion XO in order to be released. So essentially, yeah, he took custody of me under, a, I don't know, some sort of house arrest. Um, under the under the conditions, I go to counseling and submit to uh, medication that would, and abuse that would prevent you from drinking. And uh, so, yeah, that was a thing. Um, but he did that. I went through the counseling. I went through that training period with those new lieutenants that the battalion commanders to uh, talk to them about expectations. And it was that command team at the battalion level that got me through that. And I was deemed fit for duty and deployed to that second deployment, reacted to IED and, and ran the shop the best I could there at the JCC. And so, yeah, I mean, compared to, you know, September, 2004, by the time we got, got done with that second iteration in, January 06, yeah, I was feeling pretty redeemed. 
I was feeling pretty good. I felt like I had set out and accomplished what I set out to accomplish. I kind of equated the JCC to a to a company command, and you know, my wife's was graduating med school, and I was going to move on to the next chapter of life. I figured I could get a uh, a cop job coming out of the army, no problem. And there wasn't a whole lot of army bases in Detroit, and so I had to make a decision, and um, and I decided to get out and get married and moved to Detroit and uh that transition yeah um you're leaving that that command team um those experiences with those those people that tight knit group um and you've you've got your wife how much of this had your wife seen and experienced with you a lot of it um when i was injured in the first iteration in 03 and in Walter Reed they the army refused to release any information to her because she was just a quote unquote girlfriend and not a spouse. And so all the information had to go from the army or me to my mother, to my girlfriend, uh, my wife now. And, uh, you know, that brought about its own (laughs) conflicts, but, um, you know, she made it through the first war, uh, quote unquote with me. And, um, so I just, you know, I felt I could trust her. And so we got married. Um, we got married right before that second deployment. Um, knowing what she had seen, what she had saw. She saw me hospitalized, even with the suicidal ideations. Um, and she said yes that time. Um, and we got married. We were planning on a quick courthouse wedding in uh, on base. Um but it turned out our local church where she was in med school in Florida, uh, Catholic church got all kinds of rules about marriage and, you know, you got to go through a class and whatnot and the other thing. And turns out the, the pastor there, the priest at, at, in Florida, who we'd been going to every, you know, four day weekend I was there, uh, when we go to the church there, he had been stationed at the same hospital in England where I was born. And so him and I, right off the bat, kind of uh, headed off, and and he, he kind of heard our story, been through, been through a deployment, and kind of waived all those pre-Cana classes for us. And um, he was able to do a full wedding for us there in Florida, kind of on the on the fly. Um, and so she had been through all that with me, and has only ever wanted me to quote unquote be happy. Um, she's been my support. She's been my my partner, you know, but there was always things that I never felt I wanted to share with her. I didn't want to show her the ugly side of war, of what I was feeling. Um, didn't want to, to burden her with, with, with some of the thoughts and ideas that drove me to consider ending my life. But, um, but she never shied away from it and credit to her and her patience with me. Um, you know, she's she's a doc. She she wants to fix people, but there were some things that she couldn't fix. I had to find and fix on my own. And I think there is no playbook for life. And so I've had to find what makes me happy, makes me whole on my own. You know, I've been through. We have had my ups and downs, and gone in and out of counseling. And at one point, she was like, you know, I you're having a rough, rough time. I I want to see you get some counseling. And I just like, I almost kind of exploded. I'm like, I don't need counseling. I need a job. I need a career. 
I need, I need something to be proud of. And, you know, working corporate engineering, just, it wasn't, that wasn't it. Uh, that's for sure. And this need to serve has always been a drive of mine and for better or for worse. I mean, it, it has made me do, I think, good things in my community, but it's always, but it's also made me feel like less of a person when I wasn't serving. And so in that regard, it's, it was, it's always kind of been a double-edged sword, uh, because, this idea of service. Because when you came out uh, and you came back to Detroit, a lot of the opportunities originally that you were looking at, whether it was law enforcement, whether it was um, other security-related areas, you still hadn't salved the wounds. Um, no, that, and those opportunities kind of slid through your fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like since high school, I always figured, yep, yep, I'll go to West Point, go to the army, come out, get law enforcement job, I'll join the FBI. And, um, and at the time the FBI had this thing where you couldn't, you couldn't be posted in the place in which you applied or idea where you grew up. There was a whole Whitey Bulger fiasco when they're, and they're a double agent in the, in the Irish mafia or something like that. But anyway, so I tried to game the system and I applied to the FBI coming out of Georgia with the hopes that then I would take Georgia off the, off the, off the map and open up Detroit so I could get stationed in Detroit because it was obvious my wife has a doctor. She wasn't really the kind of move around the country sort of, uh, career that, uh, I, I, I possibly could have in federal law enforcement service. Um, uh, so I tried to game the system a little bit there. Um, the FBI didn't pan out. I reached out to through the Secret Service. I made some contacts through my through my employment as a private investigator, private security um, guy for uh, executive protection, and uh, started getting in bed with the uh, the Secret Service. And I matriculated through, got through the interviews, the panels, the background check, the polygraph, all that that, but. Um, but the only thing that helped me up was this was this was this police encounter in in Richmond Hill, Georgia. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't criminal in nature. They wrote it up as a as a mental assist, um, a mental health assist. And it's amazing what you can FOIA on yourself, by the way. If you ever, <laughs> I had to FOIA my my packet once I was uh, declined from the Secret Service to kind of get try to get at the uh, the, the the real reason behind it. They don't really give you a reason when they when they decline your, your application. But if you FOIA it, you can read between the lines. Um, and so what it came down to was uh, th- just the risk of, of, of having somebody with a mental health background um, and uh, a history of, of alcohol abuse. Just wasn't going to cut mustard for the Secret Service. And I get it, right? I don't find any fault with, with them on that. But, um, uh, but yeah, but that was the last, like, uh, you know, I guess a tier one uh, law enforcement agency that... Uh, that I had on my list. And so it came down to, I got, it came around to, I got picked up by uh, the Michigan state police, still a very good police organization, a, a tier two, if you would, uh, if you're equating it to uh, army forces, uh, good organization, um, really good training across the board, uh, small organization, only about a thousand troopers in the whole state. Uh, and so I was, I was, I was I was proud. I was proud to be selected uh, from that into that organization. Um, went through the they had a resident uh, training academy. Uh, went through that. Man, that was like going back home to Beast Barracks. I was like, um, <laughs> I wake up at six o'clock and work out, shit shower and shave, 
go to class all day. I have to be in bed by 10. I don't have to do laundry or cook dinners or, or pay bills during the day. I got this. I can do this all day long. Uh, so that was actually fun for me. You know, go through police training at a resident police academy. That was, uh, that was, I enjoyed it. Uh, got out on the road. Uh, for about a few months, and we had a we had a we had a layoffs, and you know, a lot of military or police, a lot of guys get out of the military, join police, and because there is a lot of overlap, you get to carry a gun, drive fast, be in charge, that's all cool and stuff. But um, it's a little bit different mindset, you know. You're looking for trouble. You're you're looking for problems to solve. You're you're putting yourself out there in a way that's a little bit different. I mean, it, it just to visualize, you know, you know, versus wearing camouflage and sneaking through the woods and trying to find the bad guys, you're, you got a big flashing light on your head and a shiny badge on your chest. <laughs> and you're, here I am, I'm here to solve the problems. And, um, it was a little bit different mentality and, uh, you're there by yourself. Essentially, you don't have your team to your left and right. I mean, the safest place I've ever been is on the front lines in Iraq with a Bradley platoon. I mean, Really, I had all the firepower in the world I could want, you know, versus versus down a, a drug corridor in in in, uh, in Ypsilanti, Michigan, with chasing down somebody trying to, trying to figure out where he, where he when they ditch the car, who, which one has the drugs on them when they both bail out. Oh, I'll go left. You go right. Um, that. Yeah, that uh, that didn't sit well. Um, I clammed up, I think. Uh, a lot of guys I talked to in, in counseling or whatnot when I was getting evaluated, um, the concern they have about hiring vets is that sometimes they're too aggressive. Apparently, I would clam up, and I was uh, I essentially failed out of my field training officer uh, period with the state police. I was asked not to return, and uh, that was hard to fail out again. But I guess the silver lining there I had to come to terms with my, I had to address it head on. I couldn't beat around the bush. I couldn't, I had to, I submitted myself through the VA to get assistance, get counseling and, um, and a, uh, a diagnosis. And it was, um, I remember talking to Mikey Pirro, Ranger school buddy of mine, and he'll tell you this, but it was almost a relief to get that diagnosis. Of PTSD. At least there's a reason why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. It's not just me making it up or I don't know. It's hard to explain in that regard, but at least I had an, had something I could work with. All these feelings of guilt of not measuring up had a name and I could start addressing it. And whether that contributed, was contributed by um, chemical imbalance, it could be treated with a little bit of medicine as well as counseling or, or talk therapy. There was there was a method to address it, and so, like I said, the silver lining about failing out of the police was that I got counseling and I got on the road to recovery, and my relationship with my wife got better. We had decided we had been putting off, I, both of us to some degree, um, family planning, uh, having a child, because I didn't feel settled. I didn't feel like I achieved enough of m- me. I didn't feel like I was good enough to be a dad. I needed to achieve something before I could settle down and and start a family. And so getting into counseling really helped me reflect on that and realize that 
all these trials and tribulations I had been through is what makes me who I am, what makes me worth being a dad, me having a story, uh, a lesson to maybe teach my kids to, 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 uh, to move on from there. Where are you now? I am in a very good place now. Um, I've reinvented myself a few times, and a lot of it has to do with achievement and service and maybe exploration. I think this sounds cool. I'll try it and not work out the way I maybe planned it. But I feel like I'm coming back home. I, uh, I grew up, like I said, in, in, in a household with my dad as a firefighter, his dad a firefighter, and visiting them, pulling up, washing my bike in the bay, washing my car when I got older, hanging out, having a cup of coffee, and seeing a group of men, not just men, but in, in this case men, but a group of adults and professionals who wanted to make each other better, who, who through their training and their mutual support and respect are making each other better while they're helping their community. And that just feels like what I've been missing all the way along since I've left the army, not having those teams, those brothers in arms, those sisters in arms by your side is the real difference between the civilian world and the, the military. Um, and I think I've found that. And one way or the other, I'm going to make this work because I believe in the mission. I believe, I believe in that system. I believe in that, in that family approach to problem solving, that this is who I want to be. And I'm going to make this. I think sometimes uh, our ideal of what we are supposed to do exceeds the reality of what we're asked to do. Um, and so whether it's walking in and trying to compete uh, in one of the most difficult combat swimming courses in the Army uh, against the water, the water polo and the swimming team, <laughs> or it's getting in a ring with a Golden Gloves boxer, I think sometimes we, we, we well, I'm, he's a human just like me, but we don't see the thousands of hours of, of, of training, but the desire is there. And sometimes we just got to look and say, hey, my desire in all of those situations was to be a part of a team that does something that matters. I couldn't agree more. And I just need to find that. Yeah, it's, it's less about titles now or accolades or resume bylines or varsity <laughs> letters or whatever. It, it, is, it, it is odd. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, firefighting is a, it's a, it's a skill trades, right? And, uh, you know, I walk into interviews and, and they see West Point on the resume. I'm like, what are you doing here? I'm like, let me tell you, I'm joining a home. I'm joining a family. Because it's that team approach to problem solving that I want. It's not the rank. And it's, it's just something about that school and our class um, that you want to continue that flavor, that <sighs> taste. Absolutely. That reminds me. One more story. Go ahead. So... I came in, I came out to, I was in a, I was in a rough place in 2011. I was between jobs. Um, and I came out to West Point for our reunion. And uh, I remember at the game, uh, Tony Mitek turns around to me. He's like, hey, I'm, he, he's in Detroit or was in Detroit before he passed. Um, hey, I'm over at Tardak. You know, I can get you a job in there. I'm like, Man, I appreciate that. I, you know, I got a couple of sticks in the fire, but I'm going to make it through. And later on, I went to the, I went to the, what was a soups reception, right? The whole receiving line, right? You go stand in line, you go shake the soup. And he's like, oh, what are you, 
what are you doing now that you're out? I'm like, well, at the time, I was, I was out of work. I was a stay-at-home dad. I said, I said that. I'm a stay-at-home dad. And he just kind of nods his head, passes me along to the next guy. And then we all go into the auditorium at, at Eisenhower. And he addresses the three or four classes that are there. And he kind of goes off on us about the attrition rate and where are the people now. And they were really working at the time to revamp the, the, the mission or the purpose at West Point to emphasize the role of West Point graduates for a career in the Army. And that is not what I remember. I remember, I even pulled out my old bugle notes to double-check this, but it says here, the purpose of the United States Military Academy is to provide the nation with leaders of character who serve the common defense. And I remember it being worded a little bit differently when we were there. I remember leaders of character for a lifetime of service to the nation. That's what I remember. Leaders of character for a lifetime of service to the nation. That's what I remember. That's what I hold to. And whether you get out at five and, and, and go to a nonprofit or you, you stay in for 25 years, you know, it's that light. Leaders of character for a lifetime of service to the nation. There's a lot of ways to cut that. They definitely are. That's what I, yeah. Again, thank you for sharing uh, so much of yourself and, and sharing your story today, Mike. Well, I, um, I, I appreciate the chance to talk with you. And um, I hope that everybody out there listening uh, takes away, if nothing else, that, that our team is here for each other. And whether you're going through great times, like we all see on Facebook, or you're going through hard times that nobody sees, you know, we're here for each other. Till duty is done. Have a great day, man. You too, Joe. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible. 